Hello. 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 And welcome to Pioneer's Post podcast. Social enterprise stories and conversations from across the world. Today's episode is chaired by co-founder of Practical Governance, Bob Toost. Here to prove that good governance has the power to unleash social impact rather than constrain it. How often have you sat in a board meeting feeling, well, frankly, bored? How often have you seen time wasted, conversations closed, processes pondered and decisions deferred? By drawing on the real-life experiences of social purpose leaders, we want to highlight bad governance practices by reading between the lines of a traditional board minute to draw out what's really going on. It's a bit of fun, but with a serious point, creating an honest debate about what those little things in meetings really mean for social change on the ground, and in the end, not just what bad governance really looks like, but more importantly, what good looks like. Welcome to Agenda Item 1 a podcast series created to challenge the conventional thinking and outdated governance practices seen all too often in today's boardrooms. The first item on today's boardroom agenda is excuses to avoid including those we're here to help on our board. I'm delighted to be joined um, by two good friends of mine, uh, Math Potts, founder of Camarados, uh, and Jess Steele, director of Jericho Road Solutions. Welcome. Good morning. Um, Do you want to just say just a little bit about who you are? Yeah, I'm Jess Steele from Jericho Road Solutions, but also from Heart of Hastings Community Land Trust. Um, I've been involved in a whole range of different community enterprises and have been for the last 25 years. So I've been on a lot of boards in my time and, and a lot of different ways of governing those enterprises. Thank you, Jess. Um, Math? Uh, hello, yes, I'm Math, and I met you, Bob, when uh, we were working together on uh, Power to Change. And Camarados is, is kind of off the back of 20 years of working mostly in homelessness, but associated feels like addiction and mental health and stuff. And uh, yeah, I've been a chief exec and sat on boards and had lots of experience of trying to involve people who society see it as being at the very bottom um, in, in more ways than one and uh, doing it spectacularly badly. Well, it's fantastic to have you both here. Um, two people that uh, I think have got a huge amount to offer. Um, to kick us off, I, I'm going to do what uh, uh, we always are going to start these sessions with, um, which is sort of reading out a kind of mock minute that, if you like, reads between the lines of what's really going on. Um, this is a made-up scenario, uh, kind of. It sort of has happened to me. So um, uh, uh, here we go. Agenda item one, excuses to avoid including those we're here to help on our board. The result of a recent board and governance review was shared. DS, a member of the management team, commented on the lack of local community involvement in decision-making that was highlighted and suggested that we recruit local community members to the board, given the terms of three trustees were about to end. The chair said it was a nice idea, but now wasn't the time with the big strategic changes underway. Would those local community members really get the bigger picture? Might it create conflicts of interest? Would they even enjoy it, given all the complicated risk and compliance that takes place at board meetings? I mean, Brian, the last member of the local community to be on the board, never really said anything anyway. It was decided instead to get the extremely stretched management team to create a community advisory group and let the board know what they say. Conversation then turned tomorrow's funder dinner and the meeting was wrapped up. (laughs) Okay. Anything sound familiar, any of that kind of conversation that you've been involved in? Oh yeah, that's absolutely happened. I've been part of a board that has had a tokenistic uh, service user on it, uh, who was still using the services uh, and uh, in a pretty uh, vulnerable state uh, in his life and uh, not given any form of insight into what he was supposed to do on the board, but was just invited along to be a board member. 
So uh, some months he, uh, you know, he was having a tough month and uh, would uh, take over the meeting and sound off about his own personal situation and demand it was sorted because he was a board member and then I as chief exec would then have lots of drunken conversations with him. He was drunk, <laughs> not me. And uh, oh, I mean it was, yeah, spiralled out of control um, and that then became a reason not to have a service user on the board because, well, look at how he behaved. Mm. So. It was classic, really. It just uh, basically underlined the, um, uh, confirmed the prejudice and assumption behind your agenda item. Uh, when in actual fact, if they'd uh, done their recruitment properly and got someone who, uh, you know, kind of was, was better suited to, to doing it and had given a bit of support into knowing what he was supposed to be doing uh, and probably didn't have a conflict of interest by using the services then they would have had a you know, fantastic experience. But they didn't put the effort in, and it was extremely tokenistic. Uh, and, uh, but th the main thing I wanted to say about your agenda point was about unconscious bias, is that um, we, it, there were just tiny, tiny little ways in which prejudice creeps in. And the, the, the tiniest way is people just like being around people like them. And I think that feeds into this decision, is that ultimately, behind the chairman's point is, I don't really want to be in a room with people who are not like me and I don't know them because I haven't hung out with them. So that's, I think that's really important, that it isn't actually about what happens in the boardroom, it's about what happens the rest of the time. Um, and yeah. of course it has to translate eventually into board decision-making processes, but actually it's about that hanging out. And even if you don't feel like it, hanging out... I've spent the last uh, two and a half years, every single Saturday, going to our site, uh, which we've kind of occupied, and there's a bottom-up development team there. And every Saturday, I go there not to have a meeting, but to hang out. It means that when they, we, we have had difficulties getting people to, um, to join the board, not from their side, but from the chair and, and uh, other members of the board. But now that is starting to get better because we've got used to each other. So many groups start off, the groups that I work with often start off as kind of campaign groups, grassroots groups. And then maybe they get an asset, they get a, a yeah. transfer of an asset or something like that. They kind of win their campaign. And immediately, all the funders and all the advisors say to them, you need an accountant on the board, you need a lawyer on the board, you need people with professional skills who can make this happen. You've done very well at the campaign, but you are not ready to run a project. So then, suddenly, all of those grassroots people disappear from the decision-making and the power, and it, they get replaced by people who have, whose whole livelihood depends on their professional distance. Because, it, you know, an accountant has to be professionally distant. That's the idea of them, a lawyer does. Um, and that, I think, is a real worry. There's a fantastic example in Hull of a development trust which is 20 years old and has always had only tenants from the estate that it's all about on its board. And the chief exec says, I can buy accountants, I can buy lawyers, I can buy any advice I need. What I need in terms of governance is the people who care about it and the people who are directly affected. And he's, wow. I love that idea. You can buy all that stuff, uh, the, the professional distance, when you need it. God, there's so much in what you've already just said, and I just wanted to pick up on a couple of those themes and explore them a little bit more. Um, uh, let's start with the one that you were just talking about, Jess, um, uh, related to sort of the, the social distance, if you like, and that kind of professional um, uh, distance uh, to create the credibility. There's quite a lot of interesting things in that. So I'm working with an organisation at the moment that is interested in creating, flipping the usual narrative of an advisory board of service users 
to an advisory board of professional advisors um, so that they're in the lead and that's like an, potentially one way of kind of looking at it. Um, but one of the things I wanted to talk about around that was, was this um, notion of, of conflicts of interest. Um, now, Matthew, you, you raised one conversation there which is that sometimes they are to be avoided, you know, the tokenistic service user, that was a very difficult scenario. Um, however, uh, funders and so on in my experience quite often um, want you to kind of design out all conflicts of interest from your governance because that's supposed to be good. Um, but what that often does is actually drive away the people that are doing the work and actually know what's going on. And so I wanted to, the extent to which you feel that, that this kind of narrative around conflicts of interest is something that needs to be a bit more nuanced, something where we could think about you know, managing conflicts as opposed to you know, this view that driving them out is the right way to deal with it. I, I spend a lot of time thinking about conflicts of interest because I have lots of different roles in various organisations that are all interconnected and so that often puts me in a position where I have a kind of multiplicity of interests which I don't see as in conflict with each other but which um, others would do. Uh, and so I think about it from my own point of view. I, but what it comes down to is if you don't have conflicts of interest then you don't really have interest. And then, so then you are distant, and that that seems to me to be what we need to be talking about is people with a direct interest should be involved. If that that will always, well, that will sometimes lead to a conflict. If that leads to a conflict, it needs discussing, it needs transparency, and it, and um, people who are not conflicted need to make the final decisions. So it's really quite straightforward, a process of managing it but of welcoming it, perhaps not by calling it conflicts of interest all the time, but by calling it direct interest. You know, some people have a direct interest, other people have a kind of professional interest or a philosophical interest, or, or they're just trying to be great and good. Mm. And there's something really interesting about the point around transparency of, of direct interest, which I really like the, the phrase as opposed to conflict. Um, that, that because also, you know, conflict of interest as a thing is often as the minutes sort of suggested, an excuse not to include people. It is kind of often used as a sort of way of excluding. Um, and also, when we talk about social distance, um, we all too often think governance board. It's all in the boardroom, and it's in that board meeting, and it's those trustees or senior management, you know, whatever, those people. Governance, if you define it in the broadest sense, which I think we should, is, is about much more than the board. Um, and it's about all these other things, the hanging out with people, the, the, the conversations you have and, and so on. And so do you think we spend too much time, you know, yeah. just worrying about what goes on in a board meeting? Yeah, absolutely. I do think that it's not an irrelevance, though. What happens is lots and lots of decisions are kind of prepped in the conversations in between boards and there's lots going on and some decisions are made. Certainly some attitudes are formed, some, um, some thoughts are emerging. And then the board meeting happens. And a lot of the people who were involved in that earlier bit are not in the room for the board meeting. And, and this isn't just for service users and community members. This is everybody. Everybody feels different while they're in the boardroom than the rest of the time. There's a fantastic example um, up in Liverpool of the Granby Four Streets. A lot of decisions happen on those streets where they have a gardening project, they've painted up the tinned up houses and they've got all these benches in the street, picnic benches. So you sit out there, you chat, you make decisions and then they go to a really formal boardroom um, where only some of them are allowed because only some of them are on the board. It's very formal and it's in a, in a different part of the city and it's, um, 
it, it's just a massive disconnect between the really vibrant, dynamic decisions that happen between neighbours who are running that community land trust in reality and then in the boardroom. But quite often the boards, well always, the board's decisions are more important yeah. and they are more formal and sometimes they can overturn. I'll be honest with you, one of the biggest challenges in, in Camarados is, 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 has been me and my colleagues. We are in the way because we keep drifting back to old tropes of organisational hierarchical tropes, which we, not in massive ways, just in little ways, and we think, God, stop, <laughs> ask someone else, <laughs> what do they think? And uh, you have to do it because the world conditions us all incredibly into hierarchies. Now, I just don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater here because um, I want to pick up on something that Jess said, which is they are important. Um, very, very early on, uh, we were talking to you, practically governance, about how we could get away from the hierarchy. And um, uh, I think it was uh, Dave Boyle who said to us, um, be careful of the tyranny of structurelessness. And if you take away all structure, actually what happens is cliques and elites develop anyway because that is the way human beings behave. So actually, there is a way in which if you had a good governance, old traditional governance structure with a board, it could perhaps avoid some bad uh, habits that develop with lack of structure. So I'm, I'm throwing the baby out of the bathwater here, you know, and let's be honest, there are some people who are good at making decisions and good at making judgments, right? So there is a reasonable case to say you could recruit them to, but you know, there are some people who are better leaders. Yeah. That, you know, it's a talent, it's a gift. I'm not saying it's a God-given gift and you can't learn it. So I, I just wanted to kind of slightly balance it out there by saying structurelessness is also bad. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So just picking up, Math, on your point about tyranny of structurelessness, um, uh, one of the things that, that I've seen when I've worked with a lot of different boards is that those that seem to work best within that kind of environment have a certain humility about what their role is versus other parts of the organisation or even the people that are involved in the organisation. So they have a role to play and it's important, it's defined, but it's not fixed. It continues to be worked out with those other groups and it's not above the other groups, it's just a different role, um, potentially depending on the organisation or depending on the movement or whatever it's doing. So, so I think there's kind of something really interesting about what's the right structure for you, what is the right role and what humility is there in who gets to take what kind of decisions? Does that make sense to, to, to both of you? I don't know, Jess, on your, on your, yeah. from your point of view. It does. I mean, I spent, I spent the 90s and early 2000s watching huge amounts of money being spent on capacity building programmes. And all of those programmes were about teaching people to behave well at the tables of the powerful, teaching everybody to do exactly what um, they were told. And that was capacity building. Um, I've fought against that for all those years because I think it's about consciousness raising and that goes, that's for everybody. That's not raising the consciousness of service users, that's raising the consciousness of all of us about how we make change mm -hmm. together. And so it feels like we need to turn governance inside out rather than this, not just upside down, but literally inside out. So the decisions that are made at a board are simply the record of the process that has got to make that decision. So you've had a, a wide-ranging process involving a number of people and accepting that they all act and, and behave in different ways and that that's okay. They are allowed to behave in different ways. They do not all have to behave um, in this kind of uh, set way. Um, and then the board writes that down and rubber stamps it and approves it. 
and that's that is for the funders it's for the auditors it's so that you do have a proper trail do you do you think just over those years that you did that that this is why some inspirational groups i'm sure many of us you've worked with kind of you know like have started the community share movement you know taking over <coughs> hastings pier pubs whatever I have started out of almost a frustration because the, 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 the normal structure has locked them out. Yeah, but sadly, so many of them end up, because of funders and other kind of stakeholders' pressure, they end up back in the same position. So you can have 5,000 shareholders who, in theory, all believe in and own this project, and then you have a small board of lawyers and accountants and yes. professional people with a strong social distance from yeah. the town even, let alone the, the kind of grassroots people who saved the, the peer in that example. Yeah. Um, so people do get pushed back into that box over and over again. And it's our job to constantly, I think, help them out again. It, 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 when you look at the way that governance is structured and it comes back to those that we're there to help, we tend to find that the way we're set up is to be accountable to, I don't know, to funders to the law to all of those things and not accountable to the people who live on the street <laughs> to exist I know. to support who actually know what's going on yes. and that's the fundamental challenge isn't it and that's what we're working with you on math you know trying to be accountable to the mission as opposed to yes and to the people who are part of that mission as opposed to accountable to some you know set of boxes that need to be ticked. so that that's been really interesting for me recently because th uh, the boundaries between various organizations that are that i'm involved in in different ways are starting to collapse and so because driven by the mission once you're driven by a mission you start to build alliances on the basis of shared values yeah. and then you start to see the boundaries actually kind of blur between the organisations and organisations become less important and the mission becomes much more important and that that takes a different kind of governance and we're struggling with that now because we're not trying to govern an organisation anymore we're trying to govern an idea we're trying yes. to, to and you don't govern an idea you nurture and encourage and support and so you take yeah. a totally different approach to it. Totally. And Meanwhile, we're still yeah. getting money though, so you've still got to be yes. accountable for the money and you've still got to do some of the old processes, but, but everything feels like it's changing for me through that process of, of getting away from individual organisations. More often than not, the organisation thinks scuppers an idea because it has to legislate an idea. I mean, the whole fact that camaraderie is based on the notion of friend, friendship and purpose, right? How do you legislate friendship? You know, I've got all these funders saying, so could, could you measure it, please? And I'm saying, so do we have to measure it to think it's a good idea? Should, let's just take all the friendship out of your life and, and see what happens. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's this absurdity uh, that we start... So absolutely, I mean, what you're saying just rings bells with me because the mission thing, I, you know. So quite a lot of uh, big charities or organisations will invite somebody onto the board and they won't change anything about the way the board runs um, and expect that person to just slot in and, you know, it fails or whatever. Now, that's obviously uh, not a great thing and, and the, the best um, boards will try to change the way they work, the way meetings are run in order to have that person on board or do even much more, which is what you described, Jess, which is have all of this other activity where people are already involved and engaged. So it's a nat much more natural sort of flow. But the other thing I found is very progressive fun funders or very progressive foundations or charities that use the fact that their board is so boring um, to say, well, we don't want to be tokenistic. We want to avoid that scenario, so we won't do it. And that in itself is another reason yes. to, 
to maintain the, the, the power dynamic, if you like, and yeah. to continue to avoid putting people on. Whereas in my experience, bringing people on, and as long as you have the open conversation about how to make sure that those people then do contribute and you're not just expecting them to come on, it challenges you bringing those people on. Yeah. If you're welcome to the conversation, have you had experience of that? You know, just, just doing it and then seeing what, you know, how to kind of make, make that work. Well, I just think it's, a lot of it is about time and effort. And I'm sorry, but one of the reasons the model doesn't work is that how people view becoming a trustee, what it's about. And it's about turning up four times a year and um, being able to say to people at dinner parties, I'm a trustee of that. And having some importance and status with no work. Don't even What's read the you on? You know, <laughs> mine, mine don't feel like that, but I know read, what you mean. I've done all that. They don't even read the papers, right? Don't even read the papers, right? Yeah. That's the only job you've got to do. Yeah. And then turn up and make enormous decisions based on no work and no insight. I'm sorry, but I mean, this really does happen. Yeah. So turn up at a project, unannounced if you like, um, or, or, or say to the exec team, I'd like to come and see some of the work. I mean, actually, I've lost count of the number of trustees who say, I really ought, I'd love to come and see, and then never do, right? Or, okay, I understand, you've got a very busy job. Turn up an hour early for the board meeting, if it's being held near a project, and go and talk to some people. Um, just make a bit of an effort to find out. And, and, and people listening to this might be thinking, well, of course people do that. They really don't do this. So a lot of it is time and effort and giving a damn. It's plain old courtesy, and I think a lot of two. And it's that kind of view of the, the board as this inflated kind of you know, overseer of it that, that has all of the sort of power and knowledge and actually it's just a but role within it. It's also mm. a way of behaving though mm. that is, I don't know, it's the difference between the dinner party and the chip shop. You know, there's a kind of etiquette <laughs> difference that makes it, that's why it's tokenistic to bring one person on because you are expecting them to behave in that same way. And I just want to throw in a few things. There are real challenges about bringing people who are inexperienced at behaving that way will often turn up late. They, might, they won't, probably won't have read the papers, but they come with insight. So in a sense, it doesn't matter yeah. so much. But, you know, they're going to... This is totally stereotyped, but it's based on my own experience. They are going to need a fag break after half an hour, not necessarily a whole hour even. You know, and there's a kind of different approach to the behaviour. And it clashes and becomes a problem. Yeah. Actually becomes difficult to, uh, to manage. So you... It, we, you can't just have one person in that position. So what we've finally done, I mean, and it has been a bit of a struggle within our, our board, um, but is to say the, te the BUD team, the bottom-up development team, have to be allowed to come to the board meeting in, in, en masse if they want. Um, and the, I really understand why that was difficult for the chair, because he is trying to build a team and a strong sense that we're all doing this together. He's trying to build continuity and he's trying to get things done. And all those things are challenged by five or six people turning up or not turning up. Mm -hmm. You know, one time they might, and as soon as they're allowed, they don't feel the need quite the same level. They all wanted to come because they weren't allowed. And then once we broke that barrier and said, yes, you should be allowed, they don't come so often anymore because it was about power. It wasn't about really wanting to sit in those particular meetings. I mean, both of you run activities that are now becoming, you describe it as a movement math, you describe it as an idea, Jess, you know, not an organisation. Um, and I know, uh, Math, recently when uh, we were coming to do some work with you around uh, the governance of Camarados, the brief that you gave me was something on the lines of help us take a chainsaw to traditional governance and leave blood-stained spatters on the establishment, right? 
Um, so could you tell me a bit about why you gave me that brief? Um, and we can sort of talk a bit about the whole uh, uh, concept of, of the way in which we govern things currently. Well, I'll try and be brief about that brief. Um, uh, I've, just, I've, I've sat in the boardroom that has decided to wind up a charity that has affected thousands of lives and in extremis going into administration. And all the uh, board members are legally and personally responsible. And I've had phone calls in the middle of the night of trustees wondering if they'll ever work again, you know, if they'll lose their house. So people forget the seriousness of taking on board the trustee position, which is the executive do not go to jail and don't lose their house. You do. It's your signature on the document. And that is forgotten within, in a sea of canapes and nice events and quarterly meetings and board papers which are unread. People forget they could lose their house and go to jail. Right, so I've been in the room where someone's losing their house and going to jail, possibly. And everyone's very frightened. And uh, the m not un unsurprisingly, the thing they're most frightened about is themselves. You know, they, they, their own roof over their head and their own personal reputation. Right? What happens is the structure of, of governance is such that that becomes the most important thing, not the fate of prostitutes in Haiti or the treatment of your staff in a large organization, your female staff, okay? That, it should be important to you as a charity, it should be part of your mission, but it becomes less important to the personal, reputational, and economic future of the board members in the room. That's just a fact. So the structure has a problem here, because the mission is what we're here for, not your personal reputation and that. So it's more important to protect our reputation. And, and listen, these are good people uh, sitting in a room also probably making a decision that the reputation of their charity is more important than the mission because there's all these other services they have to deliver and, you know, the truth is, no, actually, the most important thing is to be truthful to your mission, at whatever cost. And, um, and so there's a problem there, I really feel. And so what you have to do is, if you're going to take accountability seriously, you have to put your balls on the block. And, and okay, so, you know, I want us to be audited and publicly exposed once or twice a year. And all we have, myself and the senior management team, is, is the chance of you know, uh, redress. Mm. Interesting. There is something about radical transparency, isn't there? And it is very radical, it's ridiculously radical to, to share what's going on in your organisation. Um, I, I wrote a blog about the, um, how the money worked for Hastings Pier, and also another one more recently about how the money works at, at another um, more successful organisation um, that I'm involved in. And I kept thinking, this is radical. It's unusual to share this level of information about the money, about the way it works, about where it went and how the decisions were made. And it seems crazy that, that, that transparency shouldn't be radical. It should be normal. But it, it is. Um, Math, Jess, thanks for a really fantastic conversation which covered an awful lot of ground. Um, I just wanted to kind of wrap up with a few uh, final thoughts and perhaps um, some little pieces of kind of insight or advice for, for people that are listening. Um, so if we take the example of somebody who's working at an organisation where they don't necessarily feel they are fully engaged with those that they are there to, to support, um, it would be great just to kind of think about some of the things perhaps they could take forward or, or, or consider changing um, in conversation with their, 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 their funders and their stakeholders and their current board. So I wanted to start with this um, uh, idea of tokenism. So I think one of the things we obviously clearly said was, was 
don't be tokenistic, don't just have one service user on your board and expect them to kind of fit in with what you're doing. Um, but most importantly, I think what we talked about was don't necessarily recruit them as service users, but value the currency of experience of people on that as much as the value of professional experience and recruit a diverse board that has a mix of those things so that people are there are just people um, and we have a good kind of round of conversation. Um, is that something that, that, that you recognise and believe in? Yes. yes. <laughs> now, Matthew, yeah. you had something on that around the advisory board, just to add something in, you know, because when you have a board like that, do you need an advisory board? Uh, well, look, I mean, the thing to say, the catch-all for all this is um, uh, the worst thing to do is not to do nothing. So uh, the best thing being to do something, except uh, embrace being a bit shit. So it's going to be not entirely perfect. Just have a go at trying something. And the best approach is to adopt Jess's point, which is to, um, you know, reduce that social distance and be, be around people and try and create the possibility for more conversation. An advisory board is one approach of doing that. And I was in, in one which would give a whole day devoted to it, and it was fantastic. The problem was then the link with the board, um, because the board were never there. Um, uh, so, but just have a go at trying something and you will have thoughts in your head, oh, is this a bit tokenistic, is this a bit rubbish, but at least you're trying something and, and the best route to follow is one which is about relationships and giving time. What we're trying to avoid is you get to the big, big decision moment in a board meeting and you cannot tell me there isn't a trustee out there who has thought, you know what, I don't really have the information to make that decision, but I, we're all sat here and I'm just about to be asked to vote, so I'll just vote and then I'll go home. Well, the best way to avoid that awful sinking feeling is to put the hours in finding out more about the business. And, and that goes just for everybody. And so your governance should lead all the way up to that one point of decision. Make sure it's an informed one and not one with people who pop into your business four times a year and don't really know what they're talking about. And also, make, um, by spending time with people, you avoid the situation where you've got a really difficult decision and all hell breaks loose because people don't trust each other. And that, you know, that's the moment where that lack of trust suddenly becomes a business critical and mission critical issue because you haven't spent the time to build that trust between the people on the board. And, and that's why I'm saying be a bit, uh, embrace the fact of being a bit shit is because at, at least people will know you've had a go at trying to find out that there's been some time put in, you've listened, you've had a go. Um, it won't be perfect, but you've tried. And doing nothing for various uh, spurious reasons will just m m mean you have a riot when that big decision is made. And actually that goes on to the second point I was going to raise, which was, um, you know, the board is one place at which decisions are taken and activities happen. And I think one of the things we talked about was the fact that this happens over a whole range of different places within an organisation. And it's useful for boards to recognise that they play one role within it and the boardroom and those sorts of conversations play one role, but there are lots of others. And in fact, perhaps the board needs to look more carefully at the process by which decisions are taken rather than consider them to be the place where all the decisions are taken. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think that was something that really came out and I thought was an interesting thing. And in order to get that to work, um, there needs to be a constant negotiation in a positive relationship kind of a way about, well, what role does the board play versus staff versus people that come and use whatever service we provide um, versus people that live in the local area. And that doesn't necessarily need to be fixed. It, it can change over time uh, into what works. And no one is sort of above the other. It's just a case of they Absolutely. play different roles. Yeah, that's really alien to a lot of people because the board yeah. is accountable to the board. <laughs> or, yeah. I don't know, maybe an ombudsman. It's not accountable to the 
worker on the ground or the or the, the recipient of services. You know, that's never considered. Yeah, but there's something interesting there, isn't it? Because it's not. But but you mentioned it, Jess. Maybe you could elaborate slightly. Was that if for that to work, what we just described, that board's role, then those people need to be to a certain degree enmeshed in other things that are happening. Absolutely, they have yeah. to be part of the other conversations. Not every one of them, and not all the time, but they have to feel comfortable enough that those other conversations that that are going on are. Um, are also on mission. And actually there's something, in the, uh, the final point I was going to make on, the, on uh, is the role of kind of radical transparency and the kind of need to increasingly, we'll share what decisions are taken, the minutes, the way in which th things happen more openly and invite that kind of feedback. And one of the reasons that uh, people don't get, community members, service users don't get invited on is sometimes because uh, in my experience the chair would say, what about confidentiality? And somehow the confidentiality of the of the minutes and the um, information that gets shared at a board becomes a, an, another excuse not to invite other people. But how damaging is confidentiality when it's um, uh, actually not confidentiality? It's hushing up. Mm. Let, let's hush up harassment in the organisation and give a really good reference to the harassee. This has happened with one of our biggest organisations, right? So it's not. So that's 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 completely bogus. Absolutely. I, 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 the checks and balances thing is is, is 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 a terrible thing to hide behind. Oh, we need trustees to have checks and balances. What you need a closed room with confidentiality and private of people. Well, well, how about checks and balances that is with the public? And then finally, you know, what about uh, for those that are kind of involved in, in funding or supporting organisations uh, to do, think, do social change? What sort of, uh, you know, messages would you have for them? What I mentioned earlier about you can buy expertise, professional expertise, um, relatively easily. You can't buy on the side insight, community insight or insight into a particular life experience. You have to invite that insight and you have to treat it with respect. So the funders should be asking um, how, where are the conversations going on apart from in the board and how are those conversations impacting on the decisions? And I think that you know, funders need to recognise that, have the relationship and engage with the projects if they're going to be interested in yeah. people being in the lead and, and, and you know, they're genuinely interested in kind of uh, those that are there to help being in the lead, community leadership, whatever you want to call it, mm. that's something they're interested in and it should engage with that rather than tick the boxes. But also I think invest in it because it takes um, time and effort and the reason it takes time and effort is because you're fighting against an entire structure, system, culture which runs counter to that. So you have to find ways to, to, to fit both things and that requires investment. It's and about it's funders it's see it. Spider-Man has the answer yeah. to this. So with great power, Finish the sentence. Comes great responsibility. There you go. So uh, you've got loads of money, and these people you're funding don't. You have the power to change their life. Right, so get humble, get responsible, come out of your bloody ivory tower, listen to them, realise that you could fundamentally damage their life <laughs> if you do it badly. Uh, take the responsibility. Don't just have the power. And, and you know, I'm saying, it, listen, I, I don't actually, a lot of funders are great, actually, at <laughs> this. It's our attitude about them that is also not great. So it's the reduce the social distance thing again. If we just hung out a little bit more and understood each other, they would get stuff done. But that does take time. Yeah. The time on the porch kind of thing. It, take, it clearly takes time because hanging out 
is something that takes time, time and on the therefore porch. That's has great. to be invested in. Spend time on the porch. Yeah. I think that's does people. anyone here have a porch? No. <laughs> it came out from a conversation about how politicians every four years come and oh, knock yeah. on the door, time but they never spend time on the porch just chatting. Yeah. They knock on the door and say, will you vote for me? They, they come and they ask a transactional question and they leave. And they don't hang out. Yes. I like that. So maybe we should finish with a bit of that, you know, a bit of wisdom from Spider-Man. With great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. A bit of a, a, you know, spend a bit more time on the porch, which I think is a fantastic way of talking about how we reduce the social distance. And maybe, you know, hang out a bit more often in the fish and chip shop and not just the dinner parties. Loving um, all that. And, and, you know, there's, there, there's our wrap up. Fish and chips on the porch with Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> Even better. Um, Math Jess, thank you so much for taking part in uh, this conversation. It's been uh, really interesting and looking forward to uh, seeing what happens with all these conversations. And I know the types of things that you are experimenting with and changing and challenging in your own organisation. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening. We want to challenge the conventional thinking of today's boardroom and outdated governance practices, models and behaviours. This is just the start of a series of conversations. Have you witnessed boardroom discussions similar to what was discussed today? Do you have other boardroom experiences you'd like to share? Some practical advice that you'd be willing to contribute? Or ideas for future read between the lines agenda items as part of this series? Get in touch and join the conversation. Email me, bob at practicalgov.co.uk or tweet us, hashtag agenda one. Couple of other thank yous to Pioneer's Post for working with us on this podcast series and Baloo for providing refreshments and a recording venue.